welcome to another episode of Relative Pitch. As you can see today, it's just back to us three today, which will be fun. We just wanted to have an episode where we kind of talked about ongoing, current, and um, not as current, but recent-ish film scores, TV scores, even operas. Um, and something we talked about, I feel like a, maybe a few weeks ago, was Fire Shut Up in My Bones and how that was a historic staging for the Metropolitan Opera. Um, and we kind of wanted to talk about that and maybe even listen to a little bit of it. So, Anthony, what what's up with Fire Shut Up in My Bones? So, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, I mean, number one, the reason it is, you know, really such a big thing is because um, it's like the Met's first... Um, I would say staging of an opera where it's an all black cast um, and it's telling a black story. And so a little bit about Fire Shut Up In My Bones, it has been um, since the world premiere has been given all types of praises such as bold and affecting and subtly powerful. Um, it features the librettist um, filmmaker Kazi Lemons. The opera tells a, a poignant and profound story about a young man's journey to overcome a life of sensation of trauma and hardship. Um, so that, first of all, we've talked about this a little bit, that usually these type of stories never make it to the opera. I think when we think of opera, we think Don Giovanni, or we think insert white man here, white man's opera here, um, and that's it. And also those stories are, I mean, you can think of Wagner or, we, you know, we talked about Wagner's operas quite some time ago, but this gives something more recent. And I know that it was sold out when it first came out on the Met. And I think every showing was sold out. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we've heard about this. So what do y'all think? What are some of the things y'all heard about this opera? I mean, I was I've been listening to other podcasts who who have been talking about it and people have gone to see it and I've heard it's it's life changing. I've heard that it it was so touching in a lot of ways and just to see um an, an opera by a black composer finally put on the Met stage in itself was just amazing. Um something that was interesting that has been brought up and I think this is a point um, I can't remember who exactly made this point. What was the idea of uh, reparation tickets? Because y'all know the Met ain't cheap. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the 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 thing that we were running into or this person was kind of commenting on was the fact that not a lot of people who are being who are being represented dramatically on the stage would even be able to see that on the stage because of the the financial barrier there, right? And so this is this is the things I kind of think about whenever we have these new DEI initiatives that are being put out there is who who's getting to see these things take place, who's getting to see these composers, these conductors placed on the stage. Um, so that's something I think they should consider uh, going forward. Everyone should consider going forward is when you're presenting these projects and these initiatives and these works by minority or minority and underrepresented communities. Um, make sure those communities get to see it. Um, that's that's a huge, huge, huge thing. Imagine showing a Title I school in Atlanta, fire shut up in my bones, and them getting to see all the representation of, of people who look like them on that type of stage. Um, so, but other than that, I've heard amazing um, things about how, it. Do anyone know how much a ticket for the Met costs nowadays? Oh. Like I how think whatever... Ooh, that's a good question. Maybe I can find it. 
because you know that is a lot of money and also um i think they need to i know there's clips on youtube and everything but it's only it kind of situated in new york so only people either that have the money to go that live in new york could see it um what about the rest of the country mm-hmm. you know and and this is my thing about the met in general like we have moved into a digital age um, to where the, y'all need to be recording these things and starting to release them. Um, because I know for me, one of my favorite operas that I just heard was actually Ignatin, um by um, Philip Glass. And it, I had to do a lot of illegal YouTube searches trying to find the video, I'll admit it. And I finally saw it and I was like, see, this is what, uh, you know, this is what I'm looking for. So, Michael, did you find out how much it costs? Yes. So, let's say for the upcoming performance of Turnadot, the cheapest ticket is $113, and the most expensive ticket is $675. For the Metropolitan Opera's Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, the cheapest ticket is $89, and the most expensive is $675. Also, is it me or it feels like the Met is always doing Porgy and Bess? Like they just say so, that, that is the black show. So for this this upcoming year, um, a lot of them we have Ignatin returning, we have Turnadot, we have La Boheme, we have Cinderella, Electra, um, Fire Sharp and the, My Bones, as we've already said, Lucia de la Mora. More, more, whatever the whatever it's called. Um, oh, Madam Butterfly, the Magic Flute, the Maestro Singer. Like the ones you're always gonna see is the Maestro Singer, the Magic Flute, Borgi and Bess, Turnadot, and La Boheme. Those are the ones you're all and Don Giovanni. But Don Giovanni is kind of like in and out. They're trying to do like different things with it now. Um, but those are the ones you're pretty much always gonna see because they always sell out. Like right now, Porgy and Bess. The one on November 3rd is 84 tickets away from me and completely sold out. Like yeah. said, it's all, that, that opera will always be sold right. out. Always. Um, and it's funny as how it's a opera that's centered or focused around Black people, but it wasn't even written by a Black person, which is, I think, says kind of everything. But anyway, let's listen to a clip, one of the first clips from that we could find <laughs> from Fire Shut Up In My Bones. And this one, I believe, is called Peculiar Grace. Strange desires 
So what do we uh, what do we think about that clip of peculiar grace from Fire Shut Up in My Bones? Well, you know, first, I, oh, you got it, Anthony. You got it. No, you're gonna come in unheavy. Go. No, you know I, I enjoyed it. I really did. Um, I I thought it was great. The vocalist is he was very amazing. Um, I love the style, and and one thing that I really enjoyed is that it had the harmonies, the repetition is very reflective of more of like a gospel upbringing. Um, and I was, you know, got to reading some of the comments, and some of those comments um, I would like to address a little bit. Um, you know, some people said, you know, can nobody get, make a melody or, or something like that. And my question is, you must not understand the background of what this music is for. Like, and I and I and I I ask this question a lot, especially when it comes to black music. A lot of people, or people who are just traditionalized to hearing Mozart and everything, they understand that. But when it's black music, they don't understand it whatsoever. Um, and so they think that it is it is different and, and it is not giving what you know other operas would give but that's what black music is that's what black gospel is the rep uh the repetition the harmonies um especially at the towards the end where you know everyone kind of joins in after his little moment that is truly where that music kind of comes from and if you don't understand that you're you're really you're you're, you're kind of ignorant you know that's really what it really is because you one, you didn't take the time to really understand where this music is from, also where the composer is from, and what it's representing. And that's like, like we say this about orchestra and wind band and stuff. Like your Hindemith band is not going to sound like your Lincoln Traposi band. Mm -hmm. Your Sibelius orchestra is not going to sound like your Mahler Five orchestra. It's just different. So why is Terrence Blanchard's opera? gonna sound like Wagner or Mozart it's not it's like why the one one comment that piggybacks off of yours composers who write nice melodies never get commissioned that's so whack so why are you saying this is not a nice melody because it's not as Anthony says a traditional melody well Terrence Blanchard is from New Orleans he is a jazz trumpet player by trade and became a composer. He has wrote many scores for Spike Lee, Spike Lee's films, um, which is a lot of people probably don't know a lot of his films. Um, he is an accomplished composer. He's done plenty of things. He's a fantastic jazz trumpet player and has a lot to say on the horn. So people who are coming at this man are probably do not know about him at all i love the i love the song because a peculiar grace something thrown around in the south which he mentioned um and i'll go north where it's going to be okay yeah that's a yeah he said a lot 
in the South. Also, you know, those same people who are making these comments are the same people that a couple months ago, when we, you remember that time on, on our podcast, we talked about those Karens that wrote to, I think it was the Chicago Opera or Chicago Symphony Orchestra that was like, because you are putting, putting more Black composers or diverse composers, you are just giving in to that and I would not be showing up. Well, don't. 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 Please stay home. Actually, <laughs> actually stay home. Really do not care. Like, please stay home. You're actually doing us a big favor. Um, and one more comment um, on this that kind of threw me off a little bit. Um, it, one person said, you know, feeling very much Porgy and Bess, definitely an influence for sure. Was it an influence or did Porgy and Bess Gershwin go to the Black community and get that influence? And I'm pretty sure Terrence Blanchard grew up. That is the influence, is the the Black community. While Porgy and Bess and Gershwin, they came and entrenched in the community. So no, to be exact, Porgy and Bess was not an influence. Thank you. You want to know what's so funny? I think there was a um, an opera singer, and she was a she was a black female, and she was talking about how she did go um, get to see uh, Fire Shot from My Bones. And there was a there was a white lady standing next to her, and they were clapping at the end. And the the woman turns to her and goes, "Is that going to be you up there next?" And then what was what she you know what this woman might not have realized that she said, or what it felt like coming off was like, "Oh, no, now you have Porgy and Bess and this. Look, you know, like." Um, and she was talking about, well, why can't I be in, why can't I be Carmen? Why can't I be in La Traviata? Why can't I be in La Bon? Like, you know what I mean? And so it's this whole thing where now the, I like Porgy and Bess, I feel a little bit of tokenizing, maybe possibly about to happen with this. I mean, it was an amazing, amazing production and everybody in the cast and crew and all the musicians should be just thrilled and so ecstatic with the, how amazing it turned out. Um, but this, we can't fall into the trap that is already being laid out in front of us, which is the, oh, now you have two. That's, that's good. That's diversity. And that's, no, it's not. Um, but I wanted to show, this is a, the, the, this next clip is something that is just so cool to see on a stage. This is something that as a part of the black community we grew up with, we saw Kappas and, you know, all the, the AKAs and, you know, all like our, our, fraternities and sororities and this is a sequence it's a step uh step dance um and it's just to see the i'm just trying to imagine what the audience's reaction was to this when it happened but anyway let's look at it first then we can talk about it So what do we think about that clip? I'm sure that's the first time a lot of people in that audience have encountered 
anything like that. Um, I'm curious as to what the reactions were in the crowd um, when that happened. Because on stage, it was, it was giving me energy. It was giving me life. It was giving me fun. I was enjoying it. It was giving me black culture. Um, but what, like, how do we feel like this was represented on stage? I hope that people in the audience would treat it like they saw it on a college campus. Because I saw it a lot on Kennesaw's campus. I saw videos of other of other people stepping on other campuses, and I always had a great time. It was always fun. I was a I was like I love I've always loved the Divine Nine even before I got to college because one of my assistant principals was a Delta. Go Deltas! Um, if I would, yeah, <sighs> yeah. I were you about to say if you were if you were a black female, you would have been a Delta? <laughs> well, that for the day. In a heartbeat, and there's no, there's no better than deltas. In another life, in another life. <laughs> not you, not you bring a sorority fraternity drama. Now I know we got our, we got, we have our love for our AKAs out here too. So let me get my pearls. Let me get my pearls. So, um, you know, I thought it was cute. It was real cute. It was real cute. Definitely brought the culture to the um, forefront of the opera, which. Again, the main people that was in the opera was white. Um, probably never understood what divine nine fraternity sororities meant to the black community. Um, so I think it was a good representation of the culture. Uh, some people brought up the fact that, you know, were those real Kappas or not? Um, and that's another conversation. If you if you are part of Divine Nine, I know y'all are real particular about y'all colors and y'all your your letters, but that's a fraternity in general. Um, so I thought what what it was supposed to give, it definitely gave. It definitely gave that. It gave me very much something art realness and go for it. Love it. Awesome. Well, um, I mean, it's just so great to be in an era where we're seeing this. And it's it's still crazy, though, that this is a first. And unfortunately, there are going to be still be continuous firsts that are going to be happening because we're not there yet. As much as people want to say, oh, we are we this is the most diverse we've ever been. That might while that may be true, having a first still now, meaning there's so many that needs to come to be equitable. That's still a part of the conversation. So Keep pushing it, but good job for now, Matt. We'll we'll see how you're doing later on. Um, <laughs> so the next composer that we're gonna delve into their music is Chris Bowers. Chris Bowers is well, first of all now one of my favorite ever film and TV score like composers, and I discovered his work before I even knew who he was as a composer. Like, um, so first of all, a little bit of background of who Chris Bowers is. He's an Emmy award-winning composer and pianist who creates genre-defying music that pays homage to his jazz roots with an inflection of alternative and R&B influences. Um, so Chris Bowers is a black man, first of all. And so all the, to, for me, that's always a very significant point because being a black person within this field to see other black musicians thriving and getting their works performed and put on these stages is so significant because representation um, leads to visibility, which leads to representation, right? And representation is what gets like the youth to go, oh, this person's doing it, so can I, right? Um, kids are very big on image and seeing, they notice 
the careers and the fields that people who look like them are successful in. So to see that we're having more people of color who are getting success within this field of Western classical music is an amazing thing. And it's about time. Um, but Chris Bowers, the first thing I, the first time I noticed exactly who he was at, like outside of just the film score was whenever I was watching Bridgerton, uh, the Netflix series. So he wrote for Bridgerton, which I'm sure a lot of you have, this is, well, now it's not the most viewed. This is now it's the second most viewed, but when it came out, it was the most ever streamed um, TV series on Netflix. Like this is a huge, it was everywhere. And it took me a minute. I will have to say I'm someone who I don't like to jump on the bag, the bandwagon at the first go. But then I, you know, I was just sitting there one night. I was like, you know, let me just watch this. And I was, the oh, film no. score, like the music from the jump got me, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, Anthony, you watched Bridgerton too, right? And let me just tell y'all, I hate when things are over-popularized. Like, Twilight. Oh my what, gosh. what are some other big things that have come well, out? You like Harry I- Potter. Twilight yes. was actually not a good film. Twilight was amazing, and anyone who says it, they're just doing it for attention. Thank you. No, it's actually not a good film. Go Thank look at this. go Thank look you. at the camera work in the first movie. Thank you for coming to my good. TED Talk. Thank it you for coming to my good. TED Talk. Thank it you for coming to my good. TED Talk. It was not good. It was not good. I'm just saying, like, I, whenever anything new like that comes out, and people are just Michael's like, "Oh my gosh, this is the best! It's the best!" I'm like, it's probably yeah. not. It's probably very lackluster. But. I ended up watching. I was like, you know what? People are all talking about this. Twitter's going up in flames. Let me let me just watch like the first 15 minutes. Child, I was there for a whole 12 hours watching the from <laughs> episode one to episode end. I got hooked when they was on the tree and the first <laughs> five minutes. If y'all have seen it, you know the tree that I'm talking about. I and so I was hooked. So Bridgerton is actually really good. The music is really good. Also, not only is the music that he composed really good, but the music that was composed by other people that they put in um, to represent like a lot of, I think it was the Vega Quartet. Um, oh yeah, or it was, was it Vega or was it Vitamin String? I can't remember which one it, it was. It was either, I think it might've been Vitamin String. I just remember they did a cover of, it was thank you next and then yes, it was, thank you next and i was like sitting there like who did this like it is giving very much modern but giving very much strings and i'm like yes i like this and i remember playing the song in my music appreciation class like that next day i was like y'all finna listen to this like listen yeah. so it was like really really good i really enjoyed it it was vitamin Oh, it was I, vitamin. Okay. I was it was one of those V something. It was strings. Yeah. That's how what I remember. But like for those of you, if you have first of all, if you haven't watched Bridgerton, please it's also a Shonda Rhimes produced Netflix series. Like, girl, you you know Shonda Rhimes be putting Shonda up- Rhimes has been writing and people don't give her her flowers. She has well, been writing for so long and people throw her off because of other TV shows. Get now, off of her back. She did not write this. She she it's under her umbrella. It's a producer. It's a Shonda under her umbrella, under her brand. Her okay. brand is amazing. But yeah, so Shonda Rhimes produced things, but it's based off of uh, Julia Quinn novels, um, and it's a whole series of novels, and it's about the competitive world of Regency era London. Um, I'm gonna go back and rewatch. I know. I know. I really want to go watch it, but it's it's all about the debutantes being presented at court. 
Um, and it's, it's just high society and all those things, but it's so good. And so one of the pieces that comes up that this was the one I first was like, okay, who wrote this? Like I have to, it was, um, it's actually a cover, but he, um, arranged this cover of a song by Celeste called Strange. Um, and the clip is a, is a live video of him actually playing it with the cellist who played it in the actual, um, TV series as well. So let's look at, take a look at Strange. Okay, but can we talk about this cello though? Can we just talk about this cello? Like the amount of longing that you can feel like in those lines and just, uh, like. It I'm, was I'm... giving, it was really giving. Um, it's funny because hearing it separate from Bridgerton, I know exactly where it was going because all you gotta think about is when such a longing moment of that show happened you know anyways um because anthony is stuck in the gutter um it just like when i hear when i hear a good cello or sometimes a good bassoon makes me wonder why we still hear violin and piano concertos in orchestras all the time by the way, if you want to join my silent protest, just walk out like I do every concert. I have I have literally started every orchestra concert I go to now. If there's a piano concerto, I leave on purpose. Or if a violin one, I leave on purpose. People might say I'm wasting my money. I say I'm not. Anyways, it was great though. I mean, I do I do agree with that. I think the second, if I have to say the second most heard instrument in a uh, in a concert, I think it would be cello, which is funny because it's definitely not any of the woodwinds, it's definitely not any of the brass, um, or the third, sorry, the third most, yes, after piano and violin, I would say it's cello and that's it. Um, other than that, I don't think there's any normalized representation of soloists within a symphony orchestra. Gabriel viola. 
love the viola. It's sorry, violas, but y'all don't get shown a lot. Um, but no, this is just such a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous piece. And like there, he, he has things that this was a cover, but he has also so many other original um, uh, pieces within this uh, series. And it's just so good. Like, it's just amazing. And so the other one other series that we'll talk about, which is another Netflix series, um, is Dear White People. And this is a show that I can't even remember when I found this sometime in undergrad. And it was just such a well done and like fresh show and a little bit of a synopsis of Dear White People. Um, based on the acclaimed film of the same name, this Netflix original series follows a group of students of color at Winchester University, a predominantly white Ivy League college in Sir Princeton, Harvard, all those. Um, the students are faced with a landscape of cultural bias, social injustice, misguided activism, and slippery politics. Through an absurdist lens, the series uses irony, self-deprecation, brutal honesty, and humor to highlight issues that will still that will that still plague today's post-racial society. So this is just such, I mean, the things that were going on in this show, I was like, oh my gosh, I relate to this so much. And like the, the what I loved about it though was the diversity of the minority characters. The, the diversity of the black characters was great. Because we usually I will have to say in a lot of shows, their way of inclusion and diversity was including the same type of character all the time, or even very stereotypical um, depictions of minority characters. So to see a series that went out and like, you had you had um the the bouge like the Hillary Hillary Banks you know yeah. type of of black women and then you had like the very the activists have you throw out all this a poetic justice you know mm -hmm. all that you know that a a very coming to terms gay yeah. black yeah. man right That's what I was gonna say next uh, yeah. so like you you saw like the things that was happening but. You also saw like how his friends also reacted to that too, mm -hmm. uh, which is very interesting to see. And also, yeah, never mind. I'm gonna keep that comment to myself, girl. Next, Listen, yeah. it's Netflix. Like we're adults. We know. Uh, yeah. No, the music for it. I again, I did not know this was Chris Bowers when I was listening to it. I just knew because even the the stuff that isn't original film scoring, just the music they have in there in general. Oh my yeah, goodness, really like. Great. It's everything. So we're going to, one of our last clips we'll listen to is going to be um, a clip from uh, Dear White People. So let's take a listen to that.
that was What's Stopping Us from Dear White People. I believe that was volume two or season two. Um, first of all, it's giving me, I lost my lover in France and I'm looking out the window and I'm crying because I lost my lover in France. And That's dramatic. Or, oh or maybe it's giving me lo-fi beats, but I'm depressed because of all these exams because, you know, they are in school. They're not going to France, but, you know. I mean, both. I think mine made more sense, but we'll go. <laughs> Context close. They're in America at a university. Anyway. I just, I just enjoyed it. I, I mean, I thought it was just very, uh, such a great thing. Um, I love the rolling chords with the melody at the top. It, it's just like, it was gorgeous. Like, I mean, this, and obviously, I mean, he's a Juilliard graduate and of course Emmy award winning like he he has gotten he he deserves more flowers but he has definitely been um affirmed in his in his creativity and his uniqueness and his writing and was commissioned by the Los Angeles Philharmonic to write a horn concerto I'm so excited to hear what this is going to sound like, like from hearing all the elements of like his upbringing and all the things that we've been hearing in his film scores. Like what in the world is that concerto is going to sound like? They've been committing a lot of works. The trumpet, the principal trumpet just premiered something um, by another Mackie, not John, but Steven, I believe was his name. Um, And then now you have this concerto coming up. Hey, they're adding stuff to the repertoire. I mean, L.A. Phil has been one of the, I would say, better um, or, or orchestras about being very diverse and actually commissioning new works. And um, it's it's great to see that they are going to be playing some of this music um, for one of their shows. And no, it's just it's it's wonderful to see see our people out there succeeding and seeing minority groups and underrepresented people being uplifted and put on these uh, stages and it's hopefully it's more this is just the starting point like it's great to see it and to have the first to have all these monumental things but i want this to become a normal a normal thing that we see all the time but um yes michael and if you are interested in any of the composers we listen to today i highly encourage you go out and listen to them on your own and develop your own um thoughts and ideas about them especially Terrence Blanchard. I'm not a jazz trumpet player by any means, but I enjoy listening to him. Yeah, definitely go look at all the the work that they have done themselves, and they have. There, I'm sure there are a lot of playlists out there with all the film and TV scores. Um, and there are so many more that we, obviously we can't talk about all of them in one episode. But go check out this new stuff being written and composed is good. New music is not scary. It's actually really amazing, especially when there's, it's fine to have popular influences as well. That's also not scary. So um, we hope you guys enjoyed enjoy today's episode and definitely take a look at more of that music um, that's out there. And we will see y'all next week. Bye. Bye.